From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, jury selection gets underway in the trial of Kenneth Chesbrough. He becomes the first defendant to stand trial in Fonnie Willis's election conspiracy case. I'm Patricia Murphy. In a major development, Chesbro's presumed co-defendant, Sidney Powell, won't be in the courtroom after accepting a deal to plead guilty in the case against her. How do you plead to the six counts of conspiracy to commit intentional interference with performance of election duties? Guilty. Meanwhile, Fannie Willis is the target of Republican legislators who say they're worried about the overcrowding in the Fulton County Jail, which they blame on the DA. AJC columnist Bill Torpy joins us with his take on what he says is the irony of their sudden concern. I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington. The Oval Office speech by President Biden last night and remarks yesterday by Governor Kemp continue to show the difference between how Democrats and Republicans talk about the Israeli war with Hamas. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Well, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, and Tia Mitchell, um, I'm really glad that we're getting a chance to talk again today. But Tia, I have to say, I can't help but feel some sympathy for you if the speaker is not resolved, the issue of electing a speaker is not resolved on today, Friday, you may be there all weekend watching the proceedings. The one silver lining is I have a plane to catch on Sunday to Atlanta, no matter what. So um, (laughs) after that, that won't be my problem anymore. But yeah, I might be working through the weekend. Well, we're really happy you're going to be here with us in Atlanta. Greg Bluestein, you have no Georgia football game this weekend. This is their bye week, right? I don't, which means I have a wedding. Oh. <laughs> which means, you know, here in the did South. Did they go to Georgia? They did. And so here in the South, <laughs> uh, that means that uh, off weekends. And unfortunately, you can't do that with bat mitzvahs, as we've learned, because bat mitzvahs are scheduled three years, four years in advance. <laughs> so my daughter's bat mitzvahs in two weeks. It is a doing a Georgia home game. But uh, we couldn't we couldn't affect that. Oh, but. What a thrill that you're going to get to go through I that. Hope it doesn't hurt attendance. Your oh, our friends, our friends who are who are <laughs> diehard Georgia fans have picked my daughter over. The oh, then those months. are real friends. <laughs> those are real friends. <laughs> hey, Patricia, do you mind? Can I tell people about the way you spend some of your weekend? You're a horse person. You go up what to to the stables up in North Fulton County? Well, my daughter is a horse person yeah. now. Sometimes we take lessons together. This weekend, I'm going to be a horse person, a soccer mom, and a baseball mom. Oh. Um, so. So, yes, I will put some serious miles on my car. I actually almost ran out of gas yesterday in the carpool line <laughs> because I have been trucking my precious children to multiple activities. And my friends and I laugh. We're like, if we did as many things as our kids did, we would be the most interesting people in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my children are grown up now. But what, one of the things, but uh, obviously I carted our two kids around a lot too. And one of the mo- happiest moments of my life was when my son – decided he no longer wanted to play Little League Baseball. And what I said to him at the time was, from now on, son, the only sports I'd like you to be involved in are those that are uh, direct dominated by a clock. I'm tired of these baseball games. <laughs> oh, I love games baseball games. Like, I can't get enough of Little too. League. <laughs> I can't with softball for a couple of years. Now she's tennis. Those are much quicker. We'll drive up to like Cherokee County for a, a match that will last like 12 minutes because she'll win 8 0 and then we'll come back home. <laughs> All right. These are great days. All right. Well, we're not at the weekend quite yet. So, um, 
Uh, thank you for sharing with us some of your plans. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Well, everybody, it's been almost 18 months since Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis launched her special grand jury investigation into whether Donald Trump and a number of his allies had committed criminal offenses in their effort to overturn the 2020 Georgia presidential election. And of course, we know what's happened since then. She brought criminal charges, a RICO indictment against 19 uh, defendants initially, including uh, Donald Trump. Um, But today... Uh, we are going to see the beginning of the first trial. Kenneth Chesborough, uh, who uh, invoked his right under Georgia law to a speedy trial, um, is set to be in court as jury selection begins in his case. We'll talk about exactly what he's accused of um, and more. But before we get to that, Patricia, I think we should start by saying that Kenneth Chesborough thought he'd be standing in court with Sidney Powell, who also invoked her right to a speedy trial. But, of course, she shocked everyone when yesterday she accepted a plea deal and is ending up with a number of misdemeanor offenses, no jail time, instead of the felonies that she was originally charged with. Yes, I imagine Chesbro received that information with a combination of relief and panic. He did not want to be in the same courtroom with her. He said in a in a court motion, I've never met this woman. I've never been on a text chain with this woman. I've never been in the same room with this woman. So he made it very clear he did not want to be tried um, simultaneously with her, although the judge said, well... <laughs> It is what it is. Good luck. Um, However, now that she has taken this plea deal, it does put immense pressure on him to, um, first of all, just imagine what she's told prosecutors. Um, Her misdemeanor charges now are focused specifically to the Coffee County election interference, which Chesbro was really not um, accused of being involved in. But she was also at the center of this entire plot. She was so central to this that there was talk by Donald Trump of making her a Justice Department official so that she could have sort of the official imprimatur to go in and start um, investigating state election systems. So she's been in the middle of everything, and she knows a whole lot. And boy, did she get what you might call a sweetheart deal. (laughs) I mean, $10,000, that's less than a very cheap car. Um, And she's not going to have a criminal record if she completes her her probation, but it really opens up 
a world of questions for these co-defendants. And of course, all that hinges on her actually agreeing and, and following through on the terms of that plea deal, which means also cooperating with prosecutors and not just the case against Cheeseboro, but also the other 16 defendants still uh, who still face charges. Um, and Bill, this is so interesting because as we're taping this uh, right now, Judge McAfee is reading instructions to jurors. They're starting the jury selection in that trial involving Ken Chesbro, Cheesebro, we still don't know exactly how to pronounce his name. Um, it's been pronounced some, some different ways. Um, but we are on plea deal watch here at the AJC. Uh, we know that there has been at least discussions with uh, the Chesbro's uh, attorneys about a potential plea deal, and we'll see what happens in that case. But right now, as Patricia said, and really as AJC editor Shannon McCaffrey, who's the co-host of the Breakdown podcast, the Sidney Powell plea deal gives prosecutors access to Trump's inner circle. The the Coffee County part is so important, of course, but also Powell attended a White House meeting on December 18, 2020, with some of Trump's most extreme supporters. Um, she This could put in danger literally anyone who worked with Powell to overturn Donald Trump's uh, uh, election defeat in 2020. The inner circle here has been breached. Yeah. Um, T, I want to bring you in, but let's point out that part of her deal is not only that she has to testify uh, for the prosecution, and we know she'll probably have a lot to say, but she does have to write a letter of apology to the people of Georgia saying that she was sorry that she has for three years plus now said that the Georgia election was rigged, um, which I just think is an interesting side note. Um, Tia, uh, I think it's important to talk about Chesbro and why he is on trial. He essentially was one of those who is at the heart of the scheme to create slates of what we've been referring to as fake electors for Donald Trump. And in some ways, that's far more significant even than the data breach that Sidney Powell was accused of participating in down in Coffee County, Tia. Yeah, because these alternate electors or fake electors, they were, number one, more prominent in real time. We didn't really learn about the Coffee County data breach until a lot later. And so the alternate electors were part of the real time scheme in 2020 to reverse Joe Biden's win in states like Georgia, where um, you know, Greg was there, they met, and Patricia, I think you were there too, where these Republican electors met at the Capitol at the same time the real electors were meeting at the Capitol to try to do as much as they could to duplicate the legal process of picking electors for the state. And so it's true that Chesbro's case is different than Sidney Powell's, but again, for Fonnie Willis, it's all to her is under the umbrella of trying to overturn the election in all these different ways that former President Trump and his allies attempted to do so. This could also have a real impact on the federal charges against Donald Trump in Washington, D.C. right now, because there is a similar and wider uh, indictment of Donald Trump alleging a similar scheme that took place in Georgia also took place in multiple states across the country. And so by demonstrating that pattern in Arizona, in Georgia, in Michigan, there to have Sidney Powell flip who was in the middle of so much of this can really give prosecutors in Washington a great deal of insight into um, that specific prosecution of Donald Trump himself. So um, 
Greg, another aspect of, of the Chessboro case. Well, let, let's talk about a couple of things. Number one, you've already pointed out that maybe, maybe uh, Chessboro is thinking about a plea deal. We'll see how that moves forward today or in the days ahead. Um, and I would think one of the things that's interesting about that is certainly um, Fonnie Willis and her team would prefer not to have to take this to trial because if they do that, they're going to tip their hand on a lot of the evidence that they have and the kind of case they will eventually build against the real big fish, Donald Trump, Rudolph Giuliani, John Eastman. Exactly. You could see this, um, if this goes to trial, you could see this as a preview of what we could see later next year or even, as Tamar Hallerman said, maybe even in 2025, of the Fulton County case against Donald Trump. Meadows, Giuliani, a lot of the, as you said, the bigger fish. And so part of, I'm sure some of of Fonnie Willis's prosecutorial team uh, wants to reach a deal as quickly as possible so they can avoid that. Also, it could mean that Donald Trump goes to trial sooner. This trial, uh, this Chesbro trial is expected to last months. You know, uh, there was one estimate that could be five months. So the sooner you can dispatch of this, the sooner you could focus more of your energy and attention on the other remaining defendants. All right. So you make a good point and let's keep talking could go for as long as five months. There are serious questions about how quickly they can impanel a jury to hear this case. How many people want to give up the next potentially five months, not to mention where people stand politically in terms of Donald Trump um, and uh, his allies, uh, uh, in this case, Chessboro. And, Greg, there's a time Uh, 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 clock running right now because under the speedy trial uh, uh, statute in Georgia law, they've only got a couple weeks to seat a jury. They're still 10 months into trying to seat a jury in the YSL RICO case. And our colleagues at the AGC have some incredible reporting about the the extent and the depth or or the extent of the prosecutorial uh, attempts to try to uh, actually disqualify one of those jurors, um, those potential jurors who hasn't been seated yet. So, you know, that's that's a tremendous haul. That could be the longest trial in Fulton County history. It could make the Trump trial look like a small potatoes comparison in terms of length. Um, But you're right, Bill. It's a tremendous haul to try to seat a jury to find people who are not impartial one side or the other. And look, even the judges will acknowledge um, you're not going to find anyone who doesn't have a preconceived notion. It's going to be really hard to find someone who has never heard of Donald Trump or did not go through what we all went through in the 2020 election. Um, But they'll be asking these jurors, okay, knowing what you know, can you put that aside and just weigh this case on the value and the merits of the evidence produced in trial. And that'll be the key question. And because already this morning, we're hearing the prospective jurors are saying, hey, you know, I know the Trump family. I know uh, in, in, in this first phase. Um, and of course, we can't name those jurors, but that is what they're saying in open court. Yeah. Um, and, and Tia, what we should point out is that, you know, th- this trial is being heard by a Superior Court judge, Fulton County judge, uh, Scott McAfee, who is relatively new to the bench, he's a young man. When he held his first hearing uh, in in the this uh, conspiracy case, there were a lot of people who said, "Gee, is McAfee up to the task? He's young, he's new." And in fact, what we've learned to you is that McAfee really knows how to move things along. Uh, Patricia referred to the way in which he dismissed um, Chesbro and Powell's uh, or Chesbro's assertions that he shouldn't be tried with uh, Powell, basically saying, "Too bad, just uh, deal with it." Tia, 
if anybody can make this move forward, we're beginning to suspect that McAfee is the guy who might be able to do that. Yeah, he's been able to garner a lot of confidence in his abilities to manage a courtroom, manage a high-profile case with relatively... He he doesn't have have a lot of experience on the bench, but what he's proving is that uh, Governor Kemp made a good choice when he was appointed to the seat and that he's really, you know, working hard to provide some gravity and some leadership and some confidence to this trial. Um, so um, I think I think that part has been a boost for the case. It's a boost to the credibility of the case. Um, but the, now is where the rubber hits the road. You know, today, the jury trial, the selection of a jury, and whether he's going to be able to find jurors that both sides can agree to, and whether that will get bogged down. So it's his first big test, I would say. Yeah, I tend to think that because the defendant is named Chesborough instead of Trump, it might be a little easier to seat this jury than future juries. But I also think the notion that this this trial, if it goes forward, because it will air a lot of the def- the prosecution's evidence publicly, that that will make it easier for Trump in the future. I-, I don't know that I entirely buy that because it's also a run for prosecutors to see what works, what lands with a jury, what pieces of this argument fall specifically into Georgia's rather narrowly tailored statutes that they are trying to fit this case into. So I think that um, it really could also give Funny Willis's office a leg up if it does go forward. Instead of having to come out with all of your guns blazing at Donald Trump for the first time, they can also do this in a narrow, tailored fashion and see how far they get with a jury. I I think that's really an important point. Thank you for that. Uh, Before we leave the subject, Greg, let's just point out that when uh, Fannie Willis first announced this RICO case, these indictments, she had 19 defendants and many observers uh, said, how is she going to wrangle 19 defendants in a courtroom in one case? And of course, what's happening is it's kind of like the Agatha Christie uh, a novel, and then there were none. She's winnowing, winnowing them down one by one. I think there's 14 left at this point. Yeah, that was never the plan, right? It was never the plan to have 19 defendants in the same courtroom at the same time for the same trial. Uh, first of all, of course, there was motions to remove and motions to sever and all that. But second of all, this is her legal strategy. You saw the same thing with Fonnie Willis when she she's brought cases against alleged gang members when she's brought the case against the uh, public school Atlanta public school cheating scandal um the strategy here is to winnow the field and we've already seen at least two Scott Hall and Sidney Powell and we could see more all right um we're going to keep on top of this today is going to be fascinating because uh, the AJC's Tamar Hallerman is uh, uh watching jury selection moving forward she'll be reporting on that also AJC reporters are keeping track of whether Kenneth Chesbro is in fact going to make a deal uh, to avoid prosecution. Uh, So a really interesting day in uh, Fulton County Court. But, you know, while we're talking about Fonnie Willis, Greg Bluestein, you suggested that it would be great to bring in 
one of our great colleagues, Bill Torpy, who, by the way, I have to say that when, you know, I like a lot of people, I've been a Torpy fan for many years. And when I actually became a member of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution staff, I thought, wow, I'm on the same team with Bill Torpy, not to mention you guys. Were you a little <laughs> awestruck by Bill Torpy? Well, I'm already we awestruck by you. We're, uh, and- <laughs> okay, but we are all awestruck by Bill Torpy. And, and the reason we thought it would be great to bring in Bill today, who is the master of irony, is because of a column, Bill, that you wrote this week in which your headline was, has Fonnie Willis turned GOP pals into social justice warriors? And just one of the lines from it, you say, you are surprised and amazed since when have uh, conservative GOP senators become bleeding hearts and social justice warriors? Talking about how they're now uh, investigating the Fulton County Jail, blaming Fonnie Willis for the overcrowding, concerned about the fact that these people can't bail out and be free. Bill, welcome to P- Politically Georgia. Tell us a little bit about your observations. How are you doing today? Um, well, what kind of stopped me when I was reading that uh, story, I think it was Bluestein's story, was <clears throat> the Republican senators, and the Republican Senate has gotten uh, increasingly hard right. Uh, They were quoting the ACLU's study on the jail, and that just kind of stopped me, and I'm like, they're quoting the ACLU on this? And uh, they were, and the ACLU had uh, done a study in in conjunction with the uh, Southern Center uh, for uh, Human Rights they had done a study a year ago showing that the jail was a mess, that people weren't getting out on bond in a, uh, in a proper amount of time, that they were basically stewing in jail because they couldn't make bond, that they hadn't been indicted, that it, it was um, something that we've been writing about for, for decades. And, and so I made the point that you know, uh, they could have, if they were really interested in somehow uh, on inmates in the uh, Fulton County Jail, they would have maybe done this investigation or talked about it, you know, two months earlier or one year earlier or 10 years earlier. I mean, the jail has been a hellhole. I mean, it, it was overcrowded the week that they built it in 1989. And, and it's been under court order. Uh, you know, Judge Shub, who was uh, just a heroic figure, he had the court under uh, his orders for, I think, a decade. And, um, and here we still are. So, so that was my point. So, so, Bill, you know, and, and it hasn't been long. I mean, look, a lot, of, a lot of Democrats, even a lot of Republicans have, 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 have speculated or figured that this uh, this commission will aim, end up aiming squarely at Fonnie Willis. It will be one way that Republican supporters of Donald Trump can kind of swipe back at Fonnie Willis, uh, short of impeaching her or you know holding other formal hearings into into her use of public resources. This is one way to do it. But one you know one thing that even Republicans have pointed out is, hey, you know, there's a lot of uh, county jails <laughs> around the state. Um, that have horrendous human, humanitarian problems. Um, Augusta, Richmond County, Chatham County, um, smaller counties that might go un- overlooked by uh, by the big state media outlets like the AJC and by by the state government. Um, so I know there's some discussion in the legislature among from both parties to expand this review to more jails and more state prisons. But right now it's looking like it's just focusing on Fulton County. 
Well, I think what the, you know, if they do an investigation, you know, let me do the air quotes, and they bring out stuff, it'll be nothing different than what we have written uh, a thousand times, literally a thousand times. And, uh, you know, we already know what many of the issues are. And, and ultimately, when I, I asked one of the, uh, one of the uh, senators, you know, well, can you then bring some money to this maybe? If you're going to, you know, be interested in this, worried about this, maybe the state can do help the, the uh, county because it's going to be a $1.7 billion, you know, with a B uh, project. And he said, no, that'll open up a can of worms because there's 159 counties. So counties, you know, each each entity has to uh, pay for their own jail. So that you go. So, Bill, I've, you know, it's just such a dark irony that Donald Trump getting booked into the Fulton County Jail, I think, finally trained people's eyes on the jail itself and the conditions. There was a lot of reporting leading up. To, like, what is this facility he's checking into? Oh, 10 people have died in custody. Somebody literally died after they were covered in bed bugs. Um, it is it is a horrifically terrible place to be. And the concern among these senators was, and, and other Republicans was like, oh, but you could really get hurt in that jail. Well, yes, in fact, you could. You could even die in that jail all before you have even been uh, accused of a crime, let alone um, convicted of a crime. But this is the same group of senators, although, and I do welcome this review, by the way, I think it's important if for anybody to be looking into it. Um, it's the same group of senators who are pressuring prosecutors to have more convictions. They've passed mandatory minimums this year for, for new crimes. Um, and they have flatlined mental health funding. And we know that the Fulton County Jail is the largest mental health care provider in the state. One of the ironies that uh, you, you were mentioning, uh, Bill, that I like to point out is that all these same senators who, who brought the charges or uh, brought the uh, accusations against Fonnie Willis and who are asking for the jail to be uh, investigated, this spring they voted to make bail harder to get, which is, you know, that that's you know that is the ultimate irony you know the, they point out to the ACLU report that says boy there's too many prisoners being kept in there without bail or who can't meet bail and meanwhile they had you know this spring had tried to make bail harder to get yeah you actually Tia Bill actually in this column says the ACLU says that 196 people with bail set at $20,000 or less have remained in custody for more than 90 days and additionally 121 have been in jail for more than six months and 58 for more than a year but Tia as Bill points out it's Republicans who have argued that we shouldn't be giving bail to anybody Right. And that's I was going to ask Bill. And number one, welcome, Bill. We used to sit next to each other in the pre-pandemic AJC news. I miss it. I'm Back in the day, discussions about Vernon Jones. Yes, Vernon Jones, <laughs> and he would he would hear me going at it sometimes with uh, CEO Michael Thurman. Uh, but I know it's almost time we got to go to a break quickly. But I want to ask: Is there a silver lining? Do you think there actually could be some good if Republicans in the legislature are paying attention to this? Could there be something that comes out of this to um, address the issues we've raised? Or do they really just want to embarrass Fonnie Willis? Well, one could always hope. I, I think that the la last thing you said is probably the issue uh, that they're pushing. 
But, you know, it can't hurt, right? I mean, th this has been a, an ongoing uh, a problem for for many years. So, um, you know, why not? Sure, let them, let them go at it and, and then try to come up with something constructive. Bill Torpy, from my view as a North Sider, I got to say, you as a South Sider, we're both Chicagoans, have done pretty darn well for yourself. <laughs> and it's really a pleasure to uh, have a fellow Chicago native join us for uh, Politically Georgia today. Thanks so much for being here, Bill. Sure. Thank, thank you. This is Political Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Join the community now. Go to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast. You'll get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts, and you'll always know what's really going on. Tia, let me start with you, if I may, please. Uh, we know last night that President Biden gave an address to the nation in which he made it clear that he is a firm believer that the United States has to continue giving major funding to not just Israel in their fight against Hamas, but of course, more money for Ukraine in its war against Egypt. Let's just listen to a little of what President Biden said, in which he made it clear he understands the humanitarian side of the crisis in the Middle East. In Israel, I saw people who were strong, determined, resilient, and also angry, in shock, and in deep, deep pain. I also spoke with President Abbas, the Palestinian Authority, and reiterated the United States remains committed to the Palestinian people right to dignity and to self-determination. So, Tia, uh, let's start with that. Uh, the president firmly behind Israel, but he also had cautioned, as you'll recall, while he was in Israel, that the Israeli uh, government has to be careful about letting rage um, dictate how they wage their war in Gaza. Yeah, and I think not only in encouraging the Israeli government to be thoughtful about its counterattack against Hamas, um, encouraging the Israeli government to be uh, mindful of the humanitarian crisis and mindful of the rules of war, but also making it clear in his in his statements that, you know, Palestinians deserve freedom and a path towards peace. And I think for especially for President Biden, which is different if the president would, were a Republican, but for a Democratic president, uh, I think what he's doing is acknowledging that in his party, yes, there is support for Israel, but there also is concern for people in Gaza, in the West Bank, um, and people who 
identify with the Democratic Party, but and identify as what we would consider a a, a stance in support of the people of Palestine. Greg, um, Governor Kemp had some new comments to make about the war that Israel is waging. Uh, let's listen to just the latest in what he had to say. It's just a tragic situation, tragic, inhumane loss of Israeli lives and American lives and, and other people. And uh, so our thoughts and prayers are certainly with the people of Israel during this really trying time. Greg, I think he was also asked, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, whether he had anything to say about what the civilians, the innocent people in Gaza were dealing with. And he said, essentially, I, that's not uh, something I feel I, I can talk about right now. Yeah, this was an interview with Fortune um, yesterday. This was an interview with Fortune on Thursday, where he was asked about his response to the Hamas-Israel war and the ongoing violence. And that first question uh, was, that first clip we heard was directly in response to, hey, what's what's your take on the Hamas-Israel war? And then you're right, later on when he was asked what the U.S. should do, if they're missing anything, if they should, if they should step it up, in terms of uh, response to the Palestinian civilians killed in Israel's retaliatory strikes, it, the governor said, I wouldn't want to try to speculate or money money quarterback. Also, when asked about uh, steering the state to buy $10 million in Israel bonds, Kim just said, anybody who knows me knows where my support has been and will be in the future. To me, this sort of uh, solidifies or at least epitomizes the different responses we've seen here in Georgia from Republicans who have been almost, I, I would say, unanimous or at least near unanimous and in unflinching support for Israel and not really talking about the Palestinian civilians killed in the retaliatory strikes. And then the contrast we see with democratic statements that mention both uh, the civilians killed on both sides of the war and the hope for peace. I think one thing that was really notable about his Oval Office address was that he connected the war in Israel to the war in Ukraine as well, and said that American leadership is what holds the world together. And and he will be going to Congress asking for $100 million in foreign aid. He wants to tie that together. He wants Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan to all be tied together along with aid to Gaza in order to make the case that it is American leadership that is going to deliver the world from this threat against democracies. He sees it as a single fight. He wants Americans and Congress to see it as a single fight and not siphon off Israel aid, which will be very, very popular um, among almost the entirety of Congress, along with uh, Ukraine aid, which has a lot more opposition, particularly among Republicans. And so this is just classic Joe Biden. He has come up in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He sees the world um, as democracy versus everyone else. And he made that case last night, I thought very eloquently, I think he'll get a very warm reception for part of this. But asking for that Ukraine aid, which is going to be about $80 million of the 100 million, and Israel will be about 10 billion. Um, I don't know exactly how that's going to go. There will be efforts to separate those. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about that a little bit. But as we do, Tia, let's also point out that um Biden painted this very traditional vision that American presidents in the past have had of the role of America as the leader, the tentpole of democracy for the entire world, the most powerful, wealthiest um, nation in the world and, and the country that cares most deeply about preserving the humanitarian rights of all people. And we haven't heard that message for a very long time in Washington, Tia. 
Right. And I think not just as like the leader of the free world for democracy, but the leader of the free world as far as taking care of our allies and showing people how, you know, that I guess that shining city on the hill that even Republicans in the past would herald is is what America stood to the world. And I think that's part of the reason why Biden internationally is getting really high marks for how he's responding to um, the Israel-Hamas conflict. Um, And I think it's been a good week for him as far as showing his might as a president and speaking with a lot of clarity about these issues. And it speaks to his strength. Um, He's very good at foreign policy. Um, But it also shows the limitations politically because, again, just domestically, um, as domestically, there's still a lot of division in far as far as how the president is received. And quite frankly, domestically, his messaging has been criticized on both the right and the left when it comes to the conflict. You know, there are some people on the left who don't think he's saying enough about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza and about the plight of Palestinians. And then of course, on the right, you have people who um, who are only who are speaking in ways that are different than how the president is framing the 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 US role. Greg, um, it was Ronald Reagan who invoked the shining city on the hill during his campaign for president. He believed in that vision of America as a world uh, uh, power. That's something that shaped uh, national politicians from both parties. And the New York Times had a great analysis today that said uh, that, uh, in a way, I didn't think about it, that President Biden might be the last president who was born in World War II, doing World War II, um, to, to serve an office who was forged by the Cold War. Um, of course, Donald Trump was born just a year or so after World War II. So if he wins the election, you know, he would also be another politician who's forged by that Cold War mentality. Um, but someone who is now, as a President Biden is, is now kind of pushing back against that that urge to retrench, nationalistic, to kind of look more internally than externally at a time when, yes, yeah, Tia mentioned, there are still economic troubles. There are a lot of people being left out of America's economy. Yeah, it's so completely opposite of America first, the way that um, Donald Trump supporters articulate foreign aid. Uh, They say it's time for other countries to pay their fair share, Um, that maybe these are European countries who ought to be doling out more for their own defense. Uh, Biden is saying uh, the United States will help Israel fully fund the Iron Dome, which has been really crucial to um, fending off a lot of these uh, missile attacks, Uh, but also saying that this is a way to keep America safe. If you keep these democracies strong around the country, excuse me, around the world, if you keep um, autocracies who want to bring down their neighbors who are democracies like Russia, um, like Hamas, that that is the way to ultimately keep Americans safe within their own country, because sooner or later it will visit us here in the United States. But Patricia, the president is going to have some issues both with Ukrainian aid and I think he's going to get great support for aid to Israel, but that doesn't mean that all Democrats on the Hill particularly, and and, and even here in Georgia, are united around uh, uh, first defending Israel 
above all else and at any cost in the same way that we now have a growing number of Republicans who don't want to support Ukraine. Yeah, that's exactly right. A, a part of his speech last night, he talked about Congress and said, we're seeing divisions here at home, but we are better than this and we can get past this. It was a very sunny outlook on a very dark time in Congress, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, and he is trying to show this vision of what he thinks America is and can continue to be. And I think I don't know how many people watched that speech, um, but I think it was really one of his better ones. This is clearly something he believes. Um, it certainly is also, I think, helping get away from the narrative that Joe Biden is too old to be president. He seems very in command of these facts um, and the reason he wants to do these things. But I agree, especially that $80 billion in Ukraine funding, that's going to be a very heavy lift. Of course, Tia, um, the reality is uh, President Biden can make all the requests in the world he wants to for aid to Ukraine and to Israel, but we don't have, and for a while it appears, we're not going to have a functioning United States House of Representatives to take up that or any other measure because they are continuing to, uh, the Republicans, to not be able to elect a speaker. Jim Jordan uh, initially said after losing the second vote, he was through uh, but he decided, you know, the old wrestler in him came out and he said, I'm going to do it. I'll keep going. And so the third vote uh, is, will, will, is it underway already, Tia, or are they doing it later this morning? So right now we're in a quorum call. Um, so the voting should get underway soon and there will be nominating uh, speeches and then that roll call vote. But you're right, there's no evidence that we can tell that there are enough Republicans willing to flip to supporting Jordan to create a different outcome in this third round. Although we'll know for sure and, you know, maybe he'll surprise us. Maybe he's done a bunch of work and changed a lot of minds over the last 12 hours that we're not privy to. Um, but the you're right. If Jim Jordan is not elected speaker um, today, which is Friday, um, the House of Representatives, the Republicans don't have a plan B either. And so, so far, plan A isn't working. Plan B doesn't exist. And as a result, our government can't really get anything done. And Bill, what's what's you know the, some of the reports in Congress right now suggest that Jim Jordan could be moving even backwards from where he was. But either way, what's really happening, or one of the things that's really alarming that's happening, is the death threats, is the personal threats being leveled against those who aren't supporting the handful of lawmakers who are not supporting Jim Jordan, including uh, Georgia Congressman Drew Ferguson out from West West Georgia, um, who has said that he's faced. He put a press release out yesterday saying that uh, that he has faced death threats following change his vote from from Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise for House Speaker. It's just, you know, it's being condemned by politicians from both sides of the aisle, but that just gives you a glimpse of the, the heated rhetoric and the vitriol going on in the Congress right now. Um, Patricia, Jordan says that he condemns all of these attacks that have been coming at members, Republicans who haven't supported him. And I don't doubt that he does not want anybody uh, in the House to be assaulted but at the same time, let's remember Jim Jordan was one of those who really, in many ways, whipped up the frenzy that led to the insurrection on January 6th. 
Yeah, and even in this moment, um, you have to really think about what it's like to be one of these members of Congress, like Drew Ferguson, who now has death threats coming to him. He spoke with Chuck Williams from WRBL yesterday and said that he went to Jordan um, and said, I we need you to stop these threats against us. And Jordan said, I really don't have any power over these groups. I'm, I can't really do anything about this. And that really seems to um, solidify Ferguson's concern that this is not the man to lead them. When you have a speaker, you want that person to be, to have your back, to protect you. You may understand that you'll disagree, but you ne- you never would want them to open you or your family to physical Violence And now Jordan, although the reporting is that he is losing votes as this happens, he's insisting to move forward with votes on the House floor, including possibly over the weekend, which is going to keep these members away from their families. So their families are at home. They're having demonstrations in their districts, at their offices, potentially at their homes. And Jordan, um, who has no indication that he's going to be the speaker, wants to push forward with votes to make him the speaker even as his own members are under this incredibly hot guise and and literal threats of violence. Tia, uh, Drew Ferguson has peeled away from uh, Jordan. We, um, wh- where are you hearing, uh, what are you hearing from other members of the Georgia delegation? It looks like so far the other members of the Georgia delegation are sticking with Jordan. I talked to several on Thursday Um, Even those, you know, Rich McCormick uh, spoke to me yesterday. He also put on social media, you know, that the threats are unnecessary and he wants to move forward. Um, But he told me, you know, he didn't like the threats. He didn't think that they were, you know, helping anybody's case. You know, they're not they're not productive. But he also said that he didn't blame Jim Jordan. Um, and so he said he was still planning on voting for Jim Jordan. Every other member of the delegation who I chatted with said that they were still planning on voting for Jim Jordan, except for, of course, um, again, Drew Ferguson made it clear that he does not plan on, you know, flipping back to Jim Jordan. Um, and Drew Ferguson is among 22 Republicans who did not vote for Jim Jordan on Tuesday, which was the last time he attempted to become speaker. Uh, He can only afford to lose four. And so on Tuesday, he lost 22. We'll see what the count is today. And Bill, there's no way that Congressman Ferguson switches back to Jim Jordan after all this. This is what his senior advisor, uh, Bobby Sapporo, a a Georgia veteran Georgia operative, said about this. He said, Jim Jordan's suit coat has a better shot of being worn for three hours than Jim does of getting Drew's vote for speaker. So very insidery joke, but still. Yeah. Uh, All right. We got to get to a break. But very quickly, it does also strike me that, yes, um, the state is gerrymandered in such a way that Republican members and Democrats, for that matter, don't have a whole lot to worry about in terms of their reelection. They can stick with Jordan if they want to. But if I were another Republican in Georgia choosing to run for some different office, I might be very concerned about how this could affect me in 2024, particularly 
if Jim Jordan somehow does manage to be elected uh, speaker, real quick response. Well, that's why uh, we said in the jolt a couple of days ago, it's fear and loathing. There's there's loathing for who Jim Jordan is, uh, having blocked, having helped bring down Kevin McCarthy and block Steve Scalise. But there's also fear from those those Republicans, especially those in swing districts that Joe Biden won, that he would help, that, that his speakership could help the, defeat Republican efforts in 2024. All right, let's get to our final break. Back with more on Politically Georgia from the AJC. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Our colleagues at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you informed on all the developments in the Fulton County case against Donald Trump, particularly important right now when the trial against Kenneth Chesborough is about to get underway with jury selection already moving forward. The AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with the Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll get our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. All right, here we go. It's Friday, which means Shaney B., it's your turn to shine with Listener Mailbag. It must be Friday. By the way, I'm really excited. You know, um, our our friend Tia Mitchell, she's not going to be in Washington next week. She's going to be here in Atlanta with us. So I can't wait to see you in person, Tia. Can't wait to see you guys either. And I can't wait to get to some of these calls to the Politically Georgia podcast hotline, 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. Put it on speed dial. Call us anytime with a question, and we'll play it back here. And let's start with David in Morningside. If Jim Jordan becomes speaker, which we hope he doesn't, but if he does, will he maintain his chairmanship? of the committee that's looking into the Biden impeachment. Tia? You might hear some cheering behind me. Um, In real time, what's happening is Kevin McCarthy is giving the nomination speech for Jim Jordan. So um, if Jim Jordan (laughs) were to... (laughs) Yes, yes. So um, if Jim Jordan were to become speaker, and if he were to follow all the precedent because I'm going to put those caveats on there because, you know, things could change. But usually the House Speaker, not only does the House Speaker not chair any committees, so someone else would become the chair of judiciary, another Republican, but the House Speaker doesn't serve on committees. The House Speaker also generally does not participate in debate on the floor or vote on most routine bills. So... Um, Again, if Jim Jordan were to follow the precedent of most House speakers, no, he would not chair judiciary anymore. And he really would not do a lot of things that you would that more rank and file members do routinely. He did. He has said, though, that he would be certain to continue whipping up the oversight committee um, investigation of Hunter and uh, President Biden. 
Want to squeeze in an email before we do who's up and who's down? Let's do it. Uh, earlier this week, we got an email from Donna. She asks, what could Sidney Powell's sentence have been if she was found guilty at trial? It could have been a lot more significant. Uh, it could have carried, a for, of course, first of all, it could have been a felony, right? It could have been a felony charge. It could have stripped her of her law license. It could have ex- included a significant fines, significant jail time. And as it stands right now, these are misdemeanor charges. It's unclear about whether uh, she'll she'll be able to retain her law license, but there, it seems like there's a pathway to that. And it's probation instead of instead of time behind bars. Yeah, Sidney Powell likely never would have practiced law again, obviously, if she had uh, been convicted of a felony. Um, Also, she really could have faced some real jail time. And I think checking into the Fulton County Jail is a very clarifying moment for future defendants. And I'm sure that that played some role in it as well. But as it is, if she does complete the conditions of her plea agreement, she will not even have a criminal record at this point. She will uh, probably go back into um, the uh, far right uh, and, and in some cases, be a hero. She will have sort of helped Donald Trump in the way she could and, you know, legally no harm, no foul. I can't wait for her next book tour. <laughs> all right. Good Thank point. you. Thank you for all of your questions. But now it is time to finish the show with who's up and who's down from uh, this week. Patricia, can I start with you? We uh, always start with who's down. Who do you pick? My who's down this week is Jim Jordan. Um, I think uh, certainly go for the speaker slot as much as you want. Lord knows Kevin McCarthy did, and it worked out for him. Um, but it is it is so hard to see members of Congress face these kinds of death threats simply for um, representing what they believe is what their constituents would want and representing what they believe are their own values. So to me, that's a who's down. My who's down for the week, Bill, is Kenneth Chesbro. Spotlight's on him. He lost his co-defendant <laughs> who might end up testifying against him if this goes to trial. So uh, Kenneth Chesbro is my who's down. To you. Um, along those same lines, I'm going to say Sidney Powell, because at the end of the day, she has pleaded guilty to six charges um, that she tried to interfere with the election. And she was so high profile pushing the lies about the 2020 election. So for her to have to apologize and admit that none of it was true, she's down bad. My who's down, and and this is a hard one in some ways, is the DeKalb County Animal Shelter, which is a no-kill shelter. It's laudable that they bring in dogs to raise that they don't want to kill them. But at the same time, state investigators over the years, and again recently, are finding conditions are deplorable. Animals are kept in cages too small for them. There are feces everywhere. Um, ventilation is blocked uh, because of dirt and filth. So uh, Michael Thurman, the CEO of DeKalb County, is looking into it. And as laudable as it is to say we don't want to kill any dogs, what's the, they're living in un- intolerable conditions. Uh, Tia, uh, I'm sorry, Patricia, who's up? Well, that's a great segue to my who's up, First Lady Marty Kemp, who is having her annual pet adoption day (laughs) at the governor's mansion. Those are rescues um, coming out of some of those shelters. And I give her enormous credit because they have found homes for dogs, cats, and a hamster. I know you'll be there, Patricia. Our colleague, Maya (laughs) Maya Prabhu, will be there. Uh, My who's up for the week is Congressman Mike Collins for bringing a little bit of levity into a very fraught uh, environment at the U.S. Capitol, U.S. House by with... uh, 
some sometimes delightful tweets, sometimes not so delightful, but sometimes uh, uh, funny tweets. Yeah. Darn it. Greg took mine. I was Sorry. definitely going to say Mike Collins. Um, well, that's uh, okay. You, you can double yeah. down. I guess we'll just double down because another, you know, there's not not a lot of who's up in in, in these Washington, D.C. <laughs> streets right now. Um so, oh, I'll just give a shout out to my Jags. The the Jags won. They defeated the Saints in Thursday night football. So I'll get I'll let them be my who's up. All right, there you go. Um, my who's up for the week: Fulton County Schools. They put ninety million dollars into a literacy effort, and they have reported now uh, that they the, the reports have come out that Fulton County led Georgia in a new list of public elementary schools being lauded for literary performance on statewide exams at the elementary school level. There are still a number of Fulton County schools that don't live up to the standards, but Fulton County made a big bet, and it's apparently paid off in, uh, in big ways. So they're my up for the week. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. We're now releasing new episodes every weekday, so you can look for new additions to hit your podcast sometime in the early afternoon. All of this is leading up to Monday, October 30th, when we'll debut the new Politically Georgia radio show. It'll air Monday through Friday mornings at 10 a.m. on WABE. Join us again Monday for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.